Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God. And uh, we're going to be going through John. We did John 4 this morning. And John 5 already has uh, an audio there that we've done evidently a while back. And I was going through some of it just to make sure that we covered all our bases. I, I think we had some technical difficulties this morning when we were doing the broadcast for John 4. And I think that there were, we didn't actually read the very last line of John 4, which is after Jesus had healed this person from far off, and then the guy was going home, and his servants met him, and they said that that his son liveth, his son got better, and he said, what hour was that? And supposedly it was in the exact hour, the day before, when Jesus said, your son is healed. And the guy believed him, and he just headed home. And, you know, I you, you wonder, he's heading home. Does he believe for sure? Or is there, as he's walking home, which takes days, is he thinking like, I wonder if he really is. I wonder if he's okay. Because fear will creep back in. And, and But over and over again, Christ talks about your faith will save you. And, and faith is not positive thinking. Faith is actually tuning in to the Holy Spirit or being tuned in to the Holy Spirit because you're willing to receive that Holy Spirit. But the last line, which is verse 54, is saying this again was the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. So, what they're saying is that's the second miracle after that point. There's a question. John is writing, again, generation after the other Gospels. He's not putting everything in order. He's putting them in order to bear witness, to help people with things that they see as a problem from the Gospels. I mean, you had the Gospel of Mark, pretty short, and Gospel of Matthew and Luke, and they added more stuff in that one is writing the Jews, the other one is writing Gentiles. Marcus seems to be just making a record. You know, before that, they had lots of people who gave testimony. You know, instances when they knew Jesus or where they were with Jesus or they heard Jesus say this and we met a man who said this and a teacher. They refer to, like the Dadachi talks about the teacher. And Jesus, of course, is called a teacher. And he had lots of these sayings. And that's what was circulating around. They call it the Q Gospels. You know, the quote Gospels. The Gospels where they're, they're just putting out. And that was a way that Greeks sometimes wrote. Certain philosophers, some of the earliest philosophers. All we have is quotes. We have no story. We have no, like, parables, little stories. We, we certainly don't have events like, you know, turning water into wine and things like that with most of them. That we just have their quotes, their sayings. And it's partly because 
that's the way people spread information. That's, you know, the uh, quote is often condensing down an idea into a very short series of words and phrases. And so that was circulating around. But a great deal of it was word of mouth. Somebody just wrote me and was asking about how you have church meetings. And, uh, you know, how, how you set them up. Do you have kids there? You know, well, sometimes we have these long talks and everything. Basically, our, you know, our radio broadcasts sometimes run two hours, three hours. They could even, we're scheduled for three hours today. I don't know if we'll get all the way through three hours. But the reality is, is that we're, we're probably going to go through chapter six of the Gospel of John. Just to recap real quick, in John four, they were, he was baptizing his disciples. We're baptizing more people than John. Why was that a big deal? And of course, eventually we know that that baptizing more than John, and when, you know, like it, when we see in John nine, the parents of the blind man who are healed by Jesus were afraid of the Jews. They're afraid to speak up to the Jews about what they believed, what their son believed, because their son is professing Jesus, because he was just, he was blind since birth, and now he sees men standing as trees. He hasn't seen Jesus yet. He had this mud smeared in his eyes, made from spittle and dirt from the ground. You know, and I said one time, is that when, why did Jesus do that? You didn't see him doing that anywhere else. Where he was taking, you know, mud and spittle and, you know, I mean, he just healed somebody. We see in the last part of this chapter, he healed somebody he didn't even see. Wasn't even there. You know, my, my son is dying. And he's days away on foot. Jesus says, oh, your son liveth. You can go. And the guy goes and he, you know, like he's, I mean, just imagine if that was you. And you say, well, I believe in Jesus. I believe in what he's saying. It rings true in my heart. But as you're walking for hours, you know, down dusty paths and roads, going from this town to the next, because you're going all the way home, and it's the second day he runs into the servants. Did he think along the way, I wonder if my son really is okay. <laughs> that's got to have crept into his thinking. And, you know, that's just our humanity. But anyway, th- these parents, the blind man, when we get to John 9, which we're getting there quicker and quicker, because like I said, I've already done a few of these chapters in the past, because it was so important. The people had them so confused, and there were ministers preaching stuff that just didn't even make any sense. You know, people are arguing, do we need to sprinkle baptism, or do we need to immerse in baptism? You know, do, do you use water, or do you use what? What else would you use? Milk? I mean, like, what? what? That is... John says, I only baptize you with water. Is that essential? Any church that says it's absolutely essential that you get immersed in water don't know what they're talking about. I mean, you can get immersed in water, that's fine. You can get sprinkled, that's fine. But if you don't get the baptism of the Holy Spirit, you're just all wet. And of course, eventually when we study again Constantine and the Church of Constantine and all the people of Milan who were ordered to go out and get baptized... And they went out and got baptized. They were just all wet, many of them. They weren't Christians. Now, I believe that 
over a period of time, some of them became Christian. Because that's one of the amazing things about Christianity. You don't become Christians because you intellectually figured it out. It's because something happened in your life. And you turned your thinking around. Or your thinking was turned around for you. Something was so painful. Something was so important to you. That you let go of the delusion. What you thought was true. And were willing to walk another way. Go another way. The way of life. The way of liberty. The way of love. Which is the way of Christ. Instead of the way of force. And the way of fear. And see, the parents of the blind man were afraid. Phobias. Phobio. Phobias. They, they, they fear and they dread it. What did they dread? They dreaded being kicked out of the synagogue. Why was being kicked out of the synagogue such a big deal? Why, why was that something to be afraid of? Couldn't you just go to another synagogue? No, not. not when, when you were kicked out of the synagogue, they wrote your name down and struck a line through it, so to speak. That's a line from Quiet Man. We were just talking about that before the show started. We had somebody visiting who had never seen the John Wayne movie, The Quiet Man. <laughs> he said, oh, that's a classic. you got to see that. That's a great movie. But that that idea of being kicked out of the synagogue meant that you were getting kicked out of the social welfare system of the nation of Judea, the government of Judea, run through the government temple of Judea. Now, Christ was running a system of social welfare, too. But it was not like the Corbin of the Pharisees. And I say this over and over again, but how many preachers are telling anybody what Corbin was? I mean, the Corbin of Christ requires sacrifice. You know, everybody says, oh, we don't have to sacrifice anymore. We don't have to, we don't have to kill animals and burn them up. They never did. They were never supposed to kill animals and set them on fire. How in the world would that please God? Are you delusional? Are you crazy? No, it's not. Now, if you, you're hearing me for the first time, you're going to say, well, wait a minute, that's what it says. No, that isn't what it says. That's what people tell you it says. Those are the people who are blind to the real gospel of God. You know, I've been preparing, and I did a lot of work on it today, preparing to go through a page that we've been putting together about somebody who's teaching your children in universities. And it's just an example. It could be there's thousands of people like this that are out there teaching your children and they are just teaching them the opposite of the Logos. Logos means right reason. The Word of God is right reason. Now some places they talk about Jesus, the words of Jesus, but they don't use the word Logos. They use the word Rima, which just means what Jesus said. The words, he said. But Logos doesn't just mean words. It means the right reason. And see, if you cannot receive the right reason of God, you will not receive... You're not eating of the tree of life and you will not receive the Holy Spirit. And you will be the... Eventually, you'll be the blind following the blind. And you'll both fall into a ditch or into a pit into destruction. That if you begin to see what the gospel of the kingdom is really all about, it's going to be by the grace of God. 
And I can tell you, and I've told stories about this where I've told people from other countries and explained. They were all excited when they were hearing it. They thought it was great. First, when they heard it, they felt a little dark. And they felt a little like, I mean, like they closed all the shades in the rooms that they were staying in. And they wanted to talk to me, but were afraid to come out. And I thought like, oh. And somebody said I needed to go over and talk to him. I went over and talked to him. But they were, and I thought like, what is going on here? He's afraid of light? <laughs> From coming in the windows? You know, going to wear sunglasses inside? What's the deal? Well, that's, it's all symbolic. But, you know, we think in metaphor sometimes that we don't even know it. You know, I mean, some people say that this is all hologram and it's all invented and it's all created around us. It's not real what we see. We imagine it to be real and, and, and everything is, you know, most of every atom is space. There, you know, that's why you, you could take your hand and you can shine a flashlight right through it. And the light will go right through. Well, that's partly why. Because of the fact that your atoms that can make the molecules and the carbon and all that stuff, it's mostly space. But somehow or other, it's like, you know, solid to us. And, and it's real to us. But is, what is really real is the spirit. The spirit is what gives your substance substance. It's what gives your life life. But we have fallen to the flesh and we think the flesh is what is real. And it's not. Now, telling you that, that, that isn't going to change your perspective. And, although when Jesus told that man that his son lived it changed his perspective. He believed it. I just kind of wonder that on the way home, traveling through time and space, <laughs> left alone with your own thoughts, you began to doubt. And why that's important in this particular message today is that you will doubt. You will have days where you doubt. And if you if you make me a source of your faith, you will certainly doubt. Because I am not the source of anybody's faith. I'm flesh and blood like everybody else. And all the information I share with you, that's all plucked out of the tree of knowledge. Now, it may be the Holy Spirit that guided me as to what knowledge to share with you. And from time to time, I certainly hope that's the case. But... It's not. It's not the truth. It's not a lie. The truth is more than information. The truth is the opinion of God, which is the power of God. It's the thought of God. It's the unmoved mover way of God. And you want that to be written in your heart by the Holy Spirit. Not by me. Not by information. But we'll walk around the information. We'll talk about the information. And of course, that's what we've done when we went through John 4. And he talks about living water. He's going to give them living water. It's not actually, you can't put living water in a jar. <laughs> Although I think there's actually a product called living water. <laughs> and you could probably put that in a jar. But that's not the same living water that Jesus is talking about. But that living water that Jesus talks about turns your 
heart and soul into a well of eternal life. And you can't do it. I can't do it. But it's very important that it is done in us. And the way that it's done in us is that we accept the humbling truths about what we thought was true that just ain't so. So, anyway, back to uh, this John 9 where the, the blind man sees and his parents are afraid that they will be kicked out of the synagogue, out of the social welfare system, out of the Corbin of the Pharisees. And they say, my son is old enough to speak for himself because they don't, they don't want to get kicked out. Now, remember... The Corbin of the Pharisees was making the word of God did not affect. And Jesus clarifies, this is way back in Mark. All the Christians knew about this by then. Because Mark had been around, you know, the Gospel of Mark and the Gospel of Matthew. Been around for decades and decades. They all knew the story. They were, some of them had been persecuted to death. Because they would not eat of the tables of the governments of Rome. They would not eat of the tables of the, Stephen was put to death because he would not participate in the tables of the Pharisees. And they put him to death. But most modern Christians would be absolutely content to eat at the tables of rulers. Even though Proverbs tells you not to, Paul tells us not to, because it's a covetous practice. Because rulers don't give you their money. They give you your neighbor's money. Or your your neighbor's children's money, because they they borrow against the future, and and how important that is really becomes important when you understand the Sabbath. And we know that the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus because of he was healing people on the Sabbath. If I could heal people, I would do it on the Sabbath. <laughs> Of course, I know that the Sabbath is about debt. It's about working first and then taking your rest. That's that's what the Sabbath is about. It's, I mean, it's really clear in the day. If you don't already have the idea that you have to take off the seventh day and do no work on the seventh day, even though Jesus said, well, you know, if your sheep falls into a pit, you got to dig that out. And I've told stories about how I had two calves fall into a pit and were drowning. <laughs> on the Sabbath <laughs> and I had to go over and rope them and pull them out one at a time with a whole herd of cows around me pushing in trying to find out well why are these guys why can't they get out you know they're all concerned about the calves that are splashing around in the water and they can't get out so I mean I could get pushed into the water any minute and uh, and if the calves started pawing around me they could they could knock me out and drown me. And I fought. I mean, I was I was getting pretty dang exhausted by the time I got the first one out. And the only reason I got the first one out is a one-legged man. <laughs> Younger me. But a young uh, one-legged man saw me out there struggling way out on the desert in this field. And he stopped and he went hopped over the fence and went hobbling across with his, uh, I guess they're not wooden legs anymore, but his artificial limb. 
and came over and he was the extra weight we need to pull these calves out of that bed. <laughs> and I pulled one out and then the trick was to get that rope off him before he took off running. And uh, I got that rope off and then roped the other one and pulled him out. Did it on the Sabbath. I guess I'm going to hell for that. No. doesn't have anything to do with anything but staying out of debt. Not borrowing. In the program I got coming up eventually that I will go and and talk about this crazy professor of economics, she mentions Leviathan a number of times. So I went and expanded our page on Leviathan. What is the Leviathan? Well, the Leviathan is, is a beast that you create by borrowing money. I mean, even the word Leviathan comes from a word that means to borrow and to lend. <laughs> so, and if you do that, you can create a giant monster that will go about devouring who it will. So you need the power of God to overcome that monster. Well, of course, you've all done that. We call it the the Federal Reserve here in the United States, but it's really the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank. And of course, Christians ran into the World Bank problem. Those of you who listen regularly, I'll throw it out there. What was the World Bank at the time of Jesus Christ and the early church? Well, it was Ephesus. That was the World Bank of its day. Built by 127 different countries. Your preachers aren't telling you that. But Christians were accused of robbing the World Bank. (laughs) Give me the opportunity, O Lord. (laughs) And give me the strength to rob the World Bank. And of course, how do you rob the World Bank? You show people the way. And they leave the system of the World Bank and the IMF. Now this this woman economist, uh, I, I showed a picture of her to somebody and they thought, first thing they thought, like, Besson, that's a witch. <laughs> I don't want to pick on the poor lady. She is what she is. I, I was trying to find out more about her private life because she, I wouldn't be surprised if she doesn't think of herself as a witch. Because I, I've met a lot of witches who call themselves witches. I don't I don't call people witches to be mean, but uh, they believe they're witches. And, that, you know, some of them are members of covens. You know, they, they don't have any power over me, but they have power over other people. And, and in some cases, I believe some of them are guilty of murder. And their husband believes that they're guilty of murder. <laughs> One case. And I think their mother is guilty of murder. But I can't prove it. I turned over evidence to the sheriff, but he didn't want to mess with it. It was kind of too bizarre. He could have found out easy enough, very easily. He could have done it without even leaving town. But I just was afraid. Why was he afraid? Because she's a witch. <laughs> not, not that you should be afraid of witches, but because there's a demonic influence sometimes with these people who claim to be witches. But, you know, there's a demonic influence in the Leviathan. And what it does is it brings your brain down to a level where the, literally, the, the frequency signals coming out of evil realms 
can communicate with you. They can put fear in you. They can put anxiety in you. They, they, they can manipulate you. And, you know, ask me about Ask me about that, and the. Uh, I was thinking, trying to think of a code word. When, if you come out to the Burning Bush Festival, you can ask me about it. I'm not going to give you a code word now. It's not coming to me. Anyway, in this, uh, so in the Gospel of Nine, uh, uh, Gospel uh, of John, uh, chapter nine. I, I notice I don't have all the notes there yet, but I, I started outlining it. I'll try to get them in this next week because that's the rate we're going. We're going to be there pretty quick. So we got through five and, uh, and, and four, four, I guess. And then five has already got a recording there. And, uh, so as far as I know, it's complete. If there's questions that you have, if you go and listen to the recording, it's an hour, a little over an hour and a half, at uh, preparingyou.com, for those of you who are listening to this on uh, some podcast, you can go there and just look up John 5, and you'll see the side notes and footnotes, and, you know, about the crippled man who had no family nor friends, having been so crippled for 38 years. And supposedly if you get down to this pool, you'll be healed. And every time he goes, somebody would get in front of him. And uh, and he he can never get down there. But Christ healed him and he didn't have to go to the pool. Of course, Christ was filled of that living water that comes from within. You didn't need no magic pool. Uh, but Christ didn't pick this guy at random any more than he picked the Samaritan woman at random. She was chosen. She was destined to meet Jesus at that well. But she was destined to meet Jesus at that well because she did make some choices in her life. Everything is not predestined. If you choose to seek the kingdom of the world and the world, the flesh, and the devil, and things like vengeance and unforgiveness, and all these things that Christ warned us about. You know, you'll be going down the dark side, and forever it will control your destiny, <laughs> as, uh, as uh, Obi Wan would say. Or was it? I don't know. Maybe it was Yoda who said that. <laughs> anyway, uh, no, I think it was Obi Wan. But that's that's a reality. It will control your destiny because you've chosen to run from the light. But if you choose to go to the light, you have to be willing to see yourself in the light of God. And as long as you go to the light, it will present a different realm, different realms to you. And it will... Alter the choices before you. Because there will still be choices. But it won't be choices as to which choices. Those will be predetermined by the direction you're going. You're going down this road. You're going you're gonna to see what's along this road. If you go the other way, you're going to see what's along that way. And one of the interesting things is there's counterfeits of the good things that are on the road to the kingdom on the road to destruction. I mean, emotion 
can give you a feeling. It can release chemicals in your brain and give you a feeling of euphoria and all this stuff and maybe make you feel at peace. Of course, you know, fifth of whiskey can make you feel peace too. <laughs> Unfortunately, you also have a hangover. And of course, that is the nature of the evil. It can give you a feeling of peace. The evil can appear as an angel of light. So you have to always be asking God, that still small voice, am I going the right way? Am I making choices according to the Spirit? And I have people asking me questions like, can I do this? Can I do that? Should I go here? Should I go there? And I have to speak very carefully in the most general of terms because people will take what I say as if what I say is the gospel. And the gospel is spiritual. The true gospel. It's not words, rima. It's logos. It's the logos of God, the right reason of God. And you can't get the right reason of God just by reading words on a paper. Because words are finite, but the right reason of God is infinite. So, it's a journey. And along the, and you want to say, well, am I on the path? Or am I off the path? And, the, and that's what James is telling you, that, you know, if you, if you don't have a system of social welfare to take care of the widows and orphans and the needy of your community through charity, you're probably not on the right path. You're probably not. Now, you could have a, such a system and still be on the wrong path. And there's certain things to look for there. And that's what we go over when, as we walk around John and look at all these things. So anyway, on your own, you can go look at John 5. And our 42 minutes, you could probably find this in a podcast. Uh, it's... The podcast numbers are based on the date of the audio recording. If you if you go to like John five and you right click on where it says download recording and that link address would give you a, a date twenty twenty three oh six oh three John five. That's the name of the file. Well now you can go to your favorite podcast deal. And not not all of them have all of our. They some of them only store so many, but some of the big podcast people will store all of them. And I mean, there's hundreds and hundreds of them on some of the bigger podcast places. Just go down in chronological order and look for 2023-06-03, John five, and you can play it on your phone. And playing it on your phone, you can. Some of you can log it into your. Uh, you know, your radio. There's ways of doing that. Those of you who are technically savvy, you can do it. If you can play it on your smartphone, you can play it on your smartphone. And, uh, you can just listen to it. And hear it. And maybe, maybe something in that broadcast will speak to you. If you're led to go listen to it, it's available. We make them all available for free. But they're not really for free. Because sometimes they will cost you your delusions. <laughs> but you can afford to lose a few delusions now. And then. <laughs> How much does that cost? Well, that's ten delusions. <laughs> you have to pay ten delusions to hear that old broadcast. Okay. So anyway, now we're going to go over to John six, 
And I evidently put these notes together. I have no idea when I did it. But it's a pretty long chapter. Uh, I mean, what is it? 60, 71 verses. So we we should really cook through this. <laughs> I saw a lot of side notes. And I have an outline there. There's a lot in this one about bread. And of course, we know we only want to eat unleavened bread. <laughs> now, actually, you don't. Unleavened bread has nothing to do with yeast. For those of you who are first-time listeners, unleavened bread means bread that you obtained without force, without cruelty, without subjugating your neighbor to your will. Now, you know what? We talk about that a lot, and but we can take that down much, much, much more deeply. And when we do the episode on the woman, and when we do the episode on predestination... I probably have something out on predestination, but you can go a lot deeper into these things because the pit goes deeper than most people realize. But eventually what we want you to do is is connect to that Holy Spirit. And there's there's a phenomenon that takes place. And actually, there's evidence that it's taking place in the, this earthly realm that we live. During uh, Solar Max, when there's Aurora Borealis. Now, your salvation has nothing to do with an Aurora Borealis. But when there's an Aurora Borealis, and there was huge Aurora Borealises at the time of Christ, in the crucifixion of Christ, that they were so phenomenal, you could read print at night in the city of Rome, which is pretty low on, on the parallels of the earth. So that, and you, the only light you have is from the aurora, the, the northern lights. And they said that they could read print. The, the only other time that I heard that such a thing was possible was during what, I guess they call it the Kerrigan effect, which was back in 18, set 95, 96, somewhere around there, late 1800s, where there were huge solar storms. And they call it the Kerrigan effect. I mean, it caused, you know, telegraph offices to catch on fire because so much energy was coming from the sun and getting down so close to the surface of the earth that it was actually connecting in uh, the wires of the telegraph, charging them so much that you would have them arcing back at the telegraph office where you normally you, know, you hit the key and when you hit the key it makes a little buzz and sends it down the down the the wire. Uh, through, through telegraph, but it was actually so much energy, it was arcing right through. You didn't even have to touch the key. It was just arcing over, you know, you're seeing a little like arc going across. And it was actually catching the batteries on fire, you know, like a, like some of these electric cars that catch on fire, very powerful fires. And it burned down numerous, uh, and it really wreaked havoc with the telegraph system. Now, if that happened today, it could black out the entire nation. And it will eventually happen. When? I don't know, but I don't need to know. Because I'm walking with the Lord. Or at least I hope to. Thank God. Because it's only by His grace that I can do that. But I want you to do it too. I have to. And you want to have, have to want others to do it. Because you can't just care about yourself. Now, the dark road, they just want you to care about yourself. 
but the road of God, you can only go down it if you care about others as much as yourself. So everything that will lead you down the dark road, say, well, don't worry about those guys. Somebody else will take care of those guys. Just worry about yourself. You know that person is leading you to hell. You know, destruction. Let's just call it destruction so we don't get mixed up with people's theology about whatever hell is. But in chapter 6, it begins with a heading, Great Multitude Followed. And we see there in verse 1, After these things, which were the things that we will have covered already in 5, Jesus went over the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a great multitude followed him, because they saw his miracles, which he did on them, that were diseased. And Jesus went up into the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. And the Passover, a feast of the Jews, was nigh. Now, some people find that verse kind of controversial. But I will accept it as that, because I'm not worried about the details. I'm worried about the principles. When Jesus then lifted up his eyes and saw a great company, Come unto him. He saith unto Philip, Whence shall we buy bread that these may eat? Now, this is another one of those Jesus moments where he knows what the answer is. He's testing Philip. And and he asked Philip this. and, And John is recording it as if that was the only conversation going on. But at least... That's the way John remembers this particular conversation. But the point is not Philip. It's not how we're going to buy bread for everybody. Or even that we should buy bread for everybody. I mean, if this is the feast of the Passover, everybody's supposed to bring their own bread. I mean, they did when there was the real Passover. They made enough bread to keep them for days. And they made unleavened bread. Two reasons. One is unleavened meant bread that you obtained without cruelty or oppression. That's what unleavened bread is. It has nothing to do with yeast. But, it was probably unleavened with yeast as well. Because, just like, you know, tortillas, you can stack up a lot of them. (laughs) And, and, uh, you could, they're already made, they're already ready to eat, and you can load them in your big brick wagons and head down the wadi. And they were going to need that because they were going to have to go pretty steady. Now, there's a lot of people hauling stuff in these wagons, but these wagons also needed to clear out of the way of the wheels the rocks that are all down the wadi. And now you, you can, you can actually still go down there. And there's evidence that many, many years ago, maybe thousands of years ago, somebody moved those rocks in parts of the wadi. We can't see all of it because there's been washes going down there and there's been other roads put in. You can drive right down it now. But there's evidence, you know, like if I take you up on the top of Picture Rock Pass that you can see from the window if I lean forward far enough. <laughs> and uh, there's the road that the, everybody travels up now. It's a blacktop road that goes over the top. It's Highway 31. But I drove cattle over the top of that pass numerous times. And when you drive the cattle over, you actually are coming up the old road, the old wagon road. And for a short time, you're on both the blacktop road and the wagon road because they 
the blacktop road was put over where the wagon road was when you go over the top. And it, it just kind of, you know, dis, it disappeared because, you know, the bulldozers and the paving guys, it, they made it all disappear. But just as you go over the last of the Picture Rock Pass going north and you, your car veers to the right a little bit and starts heading down the hill, if you go over to the left and you look down the hill, there's a wagon road, extremely steep wagon road. Goes straight down, and you can see the rocks on both sides of the wagon road that people have cleared out of the way. So you have this straight path going down the road, down the deal. Now, as steep as it is, I mean, it's steep even horseback. The cows will go down it, but it's pretty steep. It's a lot steeper than the car road. And you think, well, why do they make it so steep? Well, that's just the way it is. It was hard to make roads back then. <laughs> All you had was horses. But the other reason why, it's not for going down. It's when they come back up. And, but going down, the guy's going to sit on the brake, which is just, you know, pads of canvas on wood pushing against that wheel. And uh, you don't want it to overrun your horses. But... So you're just breaking all the way down, and you got to hold it because you get going a little fast, you can't stop it. Because things going downhill are heavier than going uphill. This is the way it is, and uh, there's a reason for it. And the more you have right reason, the more you realize this. But uh, the reason it's so steep is coming up the hill. You say, well, why do you want it so steep coming up the hill? Well, usually you'll have two or three wagons come along and they'll stop down at the bottom of the hill and you want to go up the hill. So you team up those horses. You disconnect two of the teams from two of the wagons and you go up the hill. You hook all three teams onto one wagon and in a very short period of time, all three teams will pull that wagon all the way up to the top. And over the top, and then you take it over to the flat ground. And there's a, actually a place over there just beyond that where you can park that. Then you take those teams back down the hill again. <laughs> and you hook onto the second wagon. And, and you can stop and give them a little breathers and everything. But then you take these wagons up one at a time. If you try to take those wagons up with a regular team over a long distance of a slow grade, which is fine for a truck, before horse, it will put a strain on their heart. They can they can put out really hard pull for a short time. They get up to the the level you want, and then you can rest them. But you're going to need more than one team horse. Once they get, once you got up there, then you all three wagons up there, then you can move those horses over. Chances are they'll camp up there, and uh, there used to be a spring to the east of the road that went back into the mountains and and water would trickle out very slowly and somebody had hauled ponderosa pine logs big huge logs ponderosa pine logs and set them right at the head of that spring and they would they dug them out so they were like troughs and they would fill up with water and that water would go, and then it would go to the end, and they'd add little pieces of metal. They probably had wood at one time, but 
when I first came across them, those little pieces of metal there. The old telegraph wires were still there when I first came. I've been around. <laughs> but uh, they, uh, water would fill up in one trough and dip over into another trough. And then it would fill up that one, and then there was another log, and another log, and another log. And you can still see those logs there that they don't hold water anymore and the spring stopped running many years ago but uh, they would fill up with water and so guys could come with their sheep they could take their horses over there and there was water there all the time because the last log then it just started going out on the ground but they had water filling that up the whole time and somebody had to do that they had to get those ponderosa pines out of the mountains Bring them all the way down. I don't know if they hollowed them out before they brought them down. I would think that maybe they would. They looked like they were split and then hollowed out. Well, that make them lighter so you can get... But how many can you haul on a horse-drawn wagon and you got to bring it all the way down from the mountain? There was a road about a mile away that went up into the mountain. And the Ponderosa are a long ways away. So, I mean, that was a long trip. I mean, it's like a whole day to bring down one log. So that seems like a little bit of a sidetrack, but people used to work really hard to do this. I mean, people were very practical. You know, like you're going to do that. What are you eating for the days that you're up there taking a wagon all the way up, cutting down a ponderosa pine, sawing it? You know, they were probably 10 feet, 12 foot logs. So you had to saw it off at that point. You had to have an adze or an axe or something and hollow it out. Then somehow or other, you had to get it up into the wagon. (laughs) And then you had to take your team of horses all the way down. Well, you're camping out. That isn't going to happen in a day. And there's no houses up there. There's never been houses up there. But it's just a lot of work. A lot of work to do these things. And it probably wasn't much different in those days of Jesus Christ. And so Jesus is turning to Philip and says, When shall we go and buy bread that these may eat? And this he said to prove him, to test him, to test him. For he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 penny worth of bread is not sufficient for them that every one of them may take a little. That's not even enough. How, how would we even do this? One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, saith unto him, There's a lad here which has five barley loaves and two small fishes. But what are they among so many people? So, what did Jesus say? And Jesus said, Make the men sit down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So, the men sat down in numbers about 5,000. Okay, so we know we go back to Mark. There were 5,000 men and their families. So, we're talking... Again, like I said, 20,000 people. But he says, make 
the people sit down. Poio is the word that he says. Make the people sit down. It's, you know, the definition means to make. With the name of things made to produce, construct, form, fashion. And, and he was actually saying that they had to make the people sit down. Uh, and a pipto is the Greek. To, to sit down. And, you know, pipto actually means to go under judgment. So it means more than just sit down, but to sit down in some kind of an order. You know, some people will say it just means to lie back. But again, it comes from the word pipto, which is metaphorically to go under judgment. To, so that he's, he's telling them very specifically to organize themselves. And, and that's what they're expected to do. And that's, that's what he's telling them. That they have to do this first. Now he knows what he's going to do. And, and we see in Mark that it t- tell him to actually sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And why doesn't John explain all that? Well, these people for decades, for now generations, have been organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And in truth, that wasn't a surprise back then when Mark said it. Because all the synagogues were organized into ten families. And the head of each family was called an elder. And sometimes those elders were appointed to do things. But everything was centered around the family because the prophecy of the Messiah was to return every man to his family and every man to his possessions. Well, they're his. It wasn't returning him to a social estate. He was returning them to their possessions. Why were they being returned to their possessions? For the same reason when they came out of the bondage of Egypt. They they not only got their possessions, they got a lot of the Egyptians' possessions. A lot of their gold and jewelry and everything. They were taking it with them. But they were leaving behind their title in the lands. And maybe they, maybe they were paid something for that. Who knows? Because we know, I mean... They could have sold just the crops that were standing at the time they left. Because they just had hailstones all over Egypt. You know, fire and brimstones all over Egypt. That we know devastated crops all over Egypt. But not in Goshen. Which appears to be Avaris. Their crops were still standing. Now, some of them they might have harvested to take with them. But the crops in those areas were staged where one crop would come at one time and there'd be another crop that would be younger for maybe a different kind of grain that would take longer. You know, barley was usually the one that came first. And so they had probably standing crops there and, and even fields that their animals would have grazed off and they had lots of animals well, they're not going to take all that graze with them. That's staying behind. Well, they could have turned to the Egyptians and said, do you want this? Maybe to Egyptians that were kind to them. We know also that a bunch of Egyptians went with them. So the idea that the Israelites are just a race, no, no, they're not. And we clearly see that Christ, we saw it in the chapter we did this morning, that Christ wasn't just coming for the 
Israelites. You know, for the twelve tribes, he was also coming for for the Samaritans. And as a matter of fact, eventually we will see him saying, "Where I'm coming for all the Gentiles." I mean, he was coming that the whole world might be saved, meaning all of the constitutional order. He was coming there for the Romans that they might be saved. That's the spirit of Christ. That's the spirit you have to have. If you're with a group that says, oh no, we're only going to be for these groups or only for these groups or we're a special group or whatever. That's that's not Christ. That's not Moses. Moses had the Egyptians coming along with him. And we see that all throughout Israel. That they, they would have Hittites. Boaz and Ruth. So the, there were a lot of people that were mixing in because what what made you a seed of Abraham, and we see this in the New Testament, was your faith. And of course, if you really live by faith, you won't want to eat leavened bread. Bread that you obtain through oppression of somebody else, even if it's a rich person. You won't want to obtain that. So Jesus got everybody sitting down. And that probably took a little bit of time. And if they're actually organizing each other, sat down in these ranks, 5,000 men and their families, this had to have taken a little bit of time. And then Jesus took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to his disciples and the disciples to them that were set down. And likewise with the fish, as much as they would. They, they distributed it. They gave it away. And then all of a sudden it says, And when they were filled, he said unto his disciples, Gather up the fragments that remain, that nothing be lost. Did he magnify those few fishes and loaves into thousands of fishes and loaves? Maybe. It, it, it could sound that way. But these guys knew it was the time for the feast. They knew they were going to be up there, you know, in the countryside. You're telling me, I mean, if you're if you're doing the feast of tabernacles or the feast of Passover, you got to bring your bread with you. You got to bring food with you, and you got to carry it. And if you've gone a long ways, maybe you just got enough to get by for your family. But maybe you got enough that you can afford to share some of it. Of course, that's been the main theme from John the Baptist on, is charity. You know, if you have two coats and your neighbor doesn't have any, you share. Well, there's probably some people there that don't quite have enough food. And so, people were taking food out that they did have, because it doesn't say anywhere that they had nothing with them. They, we know it was a time that uh, they could have something with them. But Jesus, just whatever Jesus had and all the disciples had, they gave it all away. Which reminds me of Alexander the Great. Marching with his men across the desert. and Somebody ran out ahead and found that there was water. And he brought some of the water back to Alexander the Great in his helmet. And he offers it to Alexander the Great. And he holds it up in front of everybody and he pours it out. He says, until you all drink, I won't drink. 
So is that the attitude of Christ? Till you all eat, I won't eat. I will only eat the leftovers. Now that's absolutely in contrary to what I was telling you about concerning the Anglican ministers who were suing the people in Virginia to obtain double their salary. I told you that this morning. If And that's when we covered John 4. So you can go back to John 4, wherever you're at. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you're hearing this on a podcast, and you can go find out what Anglican ministers, what Patrick Henry, what Virginia, what court case, <laughs> where it showed you how you can turn around the courts of today <laughs> so that you can be closer to freedom. Now, you can't do that without the spirit of what we see Christ saying, where you care about other people's freedom as much as you care about your own. That's absolutely going to be essential. And what Christ is teaching them is part of that care because he's not going to eat anything till everybody eats. And you know some people aren't going to bring enough. And... So, those that brought enough have to share with those that didn't have enough. Now, you can believe that he just created... And I I absolutely believe that Christ could do that. But to get people to share, I think that's a bigger miracle myself, just from my personal experience. To take what little provisions they have and share it. And and you can do it. You know, you say, well, I only have enough for nine meals and I got three more days till I get home. Well, why don't you share the equivalent of one meal a day and get by on two meals? Or if you're really the faithful, share what you would have eaten for two meals a day and only eat one meal a day for three days. That's laying down your life for your fellow man. That's a critical thing. That will send shockwaves and ripples through the ether, through through the dark matter of the universe. They call it dark matter. Some some people call it ether. It's some sort... We're looking for it. We know there's some sort of substance out there and we can't quite identify. Theories have been, since the days of the early Greeks, ether, other people have used that. I was reading a couple of Russian scientists. They were using that term. And they were noticing something. And this is back to those keys that you can bring up if you come to the festival, either to the White Rock Festival or I will be there, hopefully, God willing, (laughs) or to the Burning Bush Festival, which we have in the fall. And uh, the White Rock Festival we have in May. You can look up whiterock.com. And you can come to that. And you can ask me there. <laughs> what am I talking about? But uh, uh, anyway, what they were noticing is that there was, uh, the scientists were noticing that something peculiar happens in northern climates when there's an aurora. That doesn't happen when there's not an aurora. Now, the aurora is not the cause. But the whatever is happening when the aurora takes place magnifies something that is bizarre. And I believe that we're going to see lots of auras. Auroras, not auras. Auroras 
in the future. And that's not that's not a difficult prediction because they come from time to time. I've seen them light up the sky. I've been around for a long time. Not since the Kerrigan effect. I wasn't here then. <laughs> Just in case people are thinking I'm that old. But the reality is there's going to be a lot of amazing things. You just want to be on the right side of those equations. And, of course, Christ is showing you the way. And part of that way is to organize yourselves in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, like Mark saying, like what we see John saying here in verse 10. And uh, start caring about others as much as you care about yourself. Because when the time comes where the grace of God is magnified you will be more of a receiver of that magnification if you're already repenting and walking the path or the way of Christ. So verse 11, And Jesus took the loaves and he broke them and he gives them to his disciples and they share them. I have footnotes there where you can go down and look at the individual Greek words what the ones that they use. And there was... Therefore, they gathered up them and filled twelve baskets with the fragments of five barley loaves, which remained over and above unto them that had eaten. Now again, you can believe that they just somehow or other they don't they don't describe it. They don't they don't say, "Well, I reached into the basket and pulled out a fish, and there was another fish." They do it in the movies. But they don't tell us that. And that had to be, if that's what was going on, that had to be shocking. That I just took a loaf out. Oh, and then another one appeared. And another one appeared. And they kept appearing in the baskets, and the baskets wouldn't empty. They don't actually say that. You can imagine that, and that may be true. But to me, the greater miracle is that they gave it all away, and so they had nothing. And they weren't going to eat until they had something. And they evidently weren't going to get anything until there was leftovers. And then they would get the leftovers. And they would get quite a few baskets of them. Now, if you actually study the feasts, that's a big part of the feast. Everybody comes and they exchange stuff and they share stuff. You know, Feast of Tabernacle, everybody's cooking everywhere and you can go share meals with everywhere. And, and you know and I know there are some guys going around, like they do in Costco. They're going around and taking all the samples. I guess they don't do that anymore. Maybe they do. During COVID, they stopped doing it. Because <laughs> everybody's afraid, oh, am I get a germ or something? But I know guys who used to go to Costco and they would go to all, they would get there later in the day and they were hungry and they'd go around and take samples until they filled themselves up on all the samples. <laughs> but uh, there were people doing that at the Feast of Tabernacles with Israel. But there were people who were genuinely sharing. And, you know, they would say, oh, you know, they would go and they would say, come and eat with us in our tent. And they would feed them and the, then they say, well, you have to come over to our tent tonight. We'll feed you tonight, you know. And they, because it was, sharing was essential to the functioning of the gospel of the kingdom. At the time of Moses, at the time of the prophets, and the time of Jesus Christ, and certainly today. So, then those men, when they had seen the miracle, that Jesus did say, said, this is of a truth, 
that the prophet that should come into the world. And again, maybe it was. You know, it just doesn't actually say it. I mean, if you already believe it and you read these things, it's easy to fill in the blanks with that miracle. But it, when you understand that from the beginning, the kingdom of God was about sharing. All the altars were institutions of sharing and charity. And we've shown you that the altars of Sumer were also sharing, but the contributions were by force. The altars of Rome at the beginning, when it was a republic, the altars were sharing contributions of the people. But by the time it became an empire, the Roman imperial cult used forced offerings. And this was why Christians were persecuted, because they would not eat of those tables, because they knew those tables were a snare, which it tells us in Proverbs. It tells us amongst the prophets. It's always talking about these snares and nets. Eating the dainties of rulers is a snare and a trap. That's a, that's a major thing we see over and over again. And if you understand that leaven is bread that was produced by oppressing your neighbor, by being cruel to your neighbor, by forcing your neighbor to contribute, then you, you realize that unleavened bread is bread that you get without that oppression, without forcing your neighbor. And it will be a miracle to feed one another in hard times without force. Can we do that? Do you want to do that? Do you want to seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness? Or do you want to think that God's just going to feed you? Because, you know, did he just feed Abraham? Because, well, Abraham burns up sheep and I really like it when you burn up sheep so therefore I'm going to bestow all kinds of blessings on Abraham and, and, and when the enemy come everybody will come to his aid. Everybody will drop everything they're doing and come to his aid. Because they all burn up sheep together. In verse 14 they said then those men when they had seen the miracle of Jesus and said this is truly Come and this is a prophet that's come into the world. And but then it says, in verse fifteen, when Jesus therefore perceived that they who were seeing that would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into the mountain himself alone. And when even was now come, and his disciples went down into the sea and entered into the ship. And went over the sea toward Capernaum. It was now dark. And Jesus was not come to them. And the sea arose by reason of a great wind that blew. So when they had rowed about five and twenty or thirty furlongs. They see Jesus walking on the sea. And drawing nigh unto the ship. And they were actually afraid. But he saith unto them, It is I. Be not afraid. Then they willingly received him into the ship. And immediately the ship was at the land where they went. 
So it was like, like time and space, like they teleported to the land because they were only so many furlongs out. It's a big lake. And, but all of a sudden they were there, you know, like, you know, kind of like at the transfiguration where, where they see Moses and Elijah and then all of a sudden, you know, they put their head down and then all of a sudden they're gone. They don't even know, like, that they're missing a, a portion of time. But then again, what is time? Well, that's another one of those things that you have to ask me about at the festival. <laughs> and the day following when the people which stood on the other side of the sea saw that there was none other boat there save that one whereunto his disciples were entered. And that Jesus went not with his disciples into that boat but that his disciples were gone away alone. Howbeit there came other boats from Tiberias, nigh unto this place where they did eat bread. After that, God, after that the Lord had given thanks. When the people therefore saw that Jesus was not there, neither his disciples, they also took shipping, or ships, and came to Capernaum, seeking for Jesus. And when they had found him on the other side of the sea, they said unto him, Rabbi, when camest thou hither? And Jesus answered them and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye seek me not because ye saw the miracle, but because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. What do they call it? Rice bowl Christians? Want to have their bellies filled. And of course, that's what's, that's why that miracle is so popular with everybody. Because it, it looks like a welfare state that, uh, everybody just gets free bread. And they don't have to do anything for it. They don't have to work for it. And these guys were coming because, for the bread. They're coming for the free bread. Not because of the miracle. And what was the miracle? What, I should help you do a study on that. Maybe I'll, so we take a look at that word miracle. Well, what what is actually meant by that in the original Greek? Now it's probably translated from Aramaic, and we can go to the Pastita and see what word they have there. But in verse twenty seven, labor not for the meat which persisteth, but for that meat which endureth into everlasting life which the Son of Man shall give unto you, for him hath God the Father sealed. Well, you want to be in that seal too. You want to be a part of that. I mean, Jesus, they refer to him as the Son of Man. And they also refer to him as the Son of God. But even Jesus said that he was going to make you sons of God. And then what's the Son of Man? And of course we have studies on that already. I didn't, I'll have to put a link in there so people can go read about that. But we're going to keep going because, like I said, there's a lot of verses here. Then said they unto him, What shall we do that we might work the works of God? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God, that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said, therefore, unto him, what sign showest thou then that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou 
work. Our father did eat manna in the desert. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that Moses gave you not the bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. And that true bread uh, from heaven is spiritual. And you want to eat of that bread because it will open your eyes and it will make many of the things that I talk about, it will give you a deeper understanding. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life unto the world. So the bread of God giveth life unto the world. Jesus is referred to as the bread of life. But Jesus is going to send us the Holy Spirit. So in essence, the Holy Spirit is also the bread of life. Because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are one. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore, give us this bread. And Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. I am. What is the name of God? I am that I am. The kingdom of heaven is in the moment. So you see the I am is the present tense of the word am. I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. Because we saw that where he talked about giving to the woman of Samaria water that you would never thirst. Of course, these are metaphors talking about the bread of which the apostles did not know. Remember when we talked and they said, well, Master, here's bread to eat. And he says, I have bread of which you do not know. Now he's talking about that bread. And he's saying, I am that bread. But we don't actually eat Jesus. That bread that cometh down from heaven, that's what we eat. Because Jesus is always pointing to the Father as the source. And that source is like the tree of life. It's the source of life. And of course the source of life is spiritual, not physical. But yet we are on this journey in a physical world seeking the spiritual world. Which means we have to constantly be fasting from the physical in order to receive the spiritual. Because if we receive the, the physical, we may forget about the spiritual So it's not good that things are too comfortable. But that's good news, because things are going to get uncomfortable. (laughs) But I said unto you that ye also have seen me and believe not. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. So whose will do you want to do? Do you want to do the will of the Father? Or do you just want to get free bread? Or do you want to be comforted? I mean, what, what is it you want? Well, you don't know what you want. But this journey will help reveal what you need to know, what you need to want. So verse 39, And this is the Father, Father's will, which hath sent me, That of all which he hath given me, I shall lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last days. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life. And I will raise him up at the last day. 
And the Jews murmured at him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he saith, I came down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said unto them, Murmur not among yourselves. No man can come to me except the Father which has sent me draw him. Now why does the Father draw him? Oh, predestination, you think so? So he'll draw those who do not want to receive the Father or only those who are willing to see the light. You know, is he going to give you an exemption now? Oh, you can hate the light, but I'm still going to save you. No, you have to love the light. Very clear. He's he's not changing that. And I will raise him up at the last day. And it is written in the prophets. And they shall be all taught of God. How are you taught of God? He's writing upon your hearts and upon your minds. Every man, therefore, that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. Not that any man hath seen the Father, say he which is of God, he hath seen the Father. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. But do you really believe on Jesus? Do you really believe in the way of Jesus? Are you really accepting the real Jesus or are you inventing an image of Jesus with the help of false pastors who have led you back into the bondage of Egypt, you have to see it for real. Verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which cometh down from heaven that a man may eat thereof and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. I thought Jesus was a temple. Now he's bread? No. It's a metaphor. And the bread that I will give is my flesh. Is the flesh a metaphor? Or are we going to actually all become cannibals? Christians were accused of cannibalism. Because of all this rhetoric. But this is from people who don't understand metaphors. They give, I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Because he wants the whole world to live. They're not going to, but he wants them to. The Jews therefore strove amongst themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? See? It's a metaphor, and they're not, they're so used to unmooring the metaphor, they don't get it. And Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink the blood, he have no life in you. Whoso eateth the flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last days. And my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. And as the living Father has sent me, I live by the Father. So he that eateth me, even he shall live by me. This is that bread which came down from heaven, 
not as your fathers did eat the manna and are dead. He that eateth this bread shall live forever. These things said he in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. So now we're into verse 60 and it talks about words of eternal life. Verse 60. Many therefore of his disciples, when they heard this said, this is a hard saying. Who can hear it? Well, it's not about hearing it. It's about understanding it. When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples murmured at it, he said unto them, Does this offend you? What? And if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before? What's he talking about? Of course, we know, because we've read the book, you know, we read ahead, <laughs> that Jesus will be a sea, be seen ascending into a cloud. What seems to be going up into the sky, or the heavens. You know, there's the basic sky, but there's this idea that heaven is upward. What, and if ye shall see the Son of Man ascend up where he was before, is the Spirit that quickeneth the flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit, and they are life. But these are some of you that believe not. And Jesus knew from the beginning who they were that believed not, and who should betray him. He knew from the beginning. So in verse 65, And he said, Therefore, said I unto you that no man can come unto me except it were given unto him of my father. So you're not going to get this. Not really get it. You may think you get it, but you're not going to really get it unless you, it's revealed to you of the father. And I have to reiterate that because I believe that is absolutely true. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked no more with him. Then said Jesus unto the twelve, Will ye also go away? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? Thou hast the word of eternal life, and we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ and the Son of the living God. The Son of God, of course, is the head of the religion of the righteous. Augustus said he was the son of God because he was the head of the religion of the world. But Jesus was also the son of God because he was the head of the religion. And of course, in the religion of God, there's actually divine intervention within our character, according to the Holy Spirit. So, back to 69 again. And we believe and are sure that thou art the Christ, the son of the living God, in verse 70, Jesus answered them, Have not I chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil? He spake of Judas Iscariot, and the son of Simon. And he, and he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. So we actually got through all 71 verses. Now I have the chat room open. You asked the easy question, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, you know, I've, I've often wanted to tackle that. And there's, most people are not going to get it. Uh, 
I'll give you a couple of little hints, though. And her question is, what was Abraham doing with his son up there to be sacrificed? Now, Abraham was nine generations away from Shem. And there was a lot of stuff going on. And nine generations, that's... And people were still living a pretty long time. They weren't living as long as they did before the flood. There was some sort of genetic alteration, probably by the sun or whatever, so that people did not live as long. Uh, Shem was going to live a long time. And I believe that Shem may have still been alive when Abraham... Shem may have been Melchizedek, and I have articles up that suggest that. And none of that is required belief on anybody's part. If you don't want to believe that, that's fine. The important thing is that you have to believe that we should be loving one another and not coveting one another's goods. And we should be forgiving one another and not trying to judge one another, not trying to exercise authority one over the other. And uh, we should learn to walk in faith. These, these are the critical things. I don't want to create all kinds of dogma and doctrines and because then, then it's about misinterpretation. But on a cursory examination, Abraham is this nine generations later, and there is evidence that there was child sacrifice amongst some of the city-states. And there were lots of them by this time. There were people all over the place. And how they get to that, well, of course, they have blind guides, and they're not living according to the way of Christ. And we know they weren't in Sodom, and Gomorrah, and probably a lot of other city-states as well. And certainly the people that came and conquered Sodom and Gomorrah, the five kings that came and conquered them, they weren't living according to that. So it doesn't take very many generations that you're doing absolutely crazy things. Now today, people are sacrificing their children on a regular basis. They sacrifice them to public school, even though they know that they're sexualizing their children. They have good reason to believe that they're lying to their children, teaching them false history, teaching them false values. Uh, Of course, the media is sacrificing the minds of the children to the media. And, of course, everybody who is running up this phenomenal billions of dollars and trillions of dollars in debt all over the world in almost every single country... I say almost every, because I don't know every single one, but it looks like every single one. They're cursing their children with debt. So they're sacrificing their children so that they can be comfortable today. So that's already going on today. And there's also evidence that there are actually people sacrificing children, killing children, uh, torturing children to death. Uh, we know that in the Andes they did this, they... They were to sacrifice their children uh, amongst some of the cultures. Not all cultures did this. Some people prized their children. But some thought that they would receive... Because if you go down this road, the dark road, you're going to receive messages from the dark side, from the evil, from the lower... the fallen angels, whatever you want to call them. The spirits that have fallen to depravity. And they're going to say it's okay to take from the rich. It's okay to take from your children's future. It's okay to have abortions. It's okay, you know, it's your right. I mean, that that's child sacrifice, isn't it? So, but it will take your brain with you. You think you're making all kinds of choices. No, those choices are being made in your brain. You're receiving signals from the dark side. 
And it's organizing your thoughts according to the radical, selfish, dark side. That's actually physically controlling the dendritic connections in your brain to one degree or another. And of course, we can see all those different degrees in culture and societies and everything. I, I actually looked up sadomasochists a couple of days ago and, you know, I, I, I did a search on Wikipedia because I was wanted to take a look at the definition of that. And I'm sure I could have looked it up four or five years ago and would have told you, you know, uh, you know, where the word came from and all this kind of stuff. Now, if you go to it, not that I encourage anybody to go to it, they actually show people being tortured. They show these events where people, you know, in black leather, or actually, you know, they show naked people being tortured on Wikipedia in photographs. Shocking. And anybody on the internet, they don't say, are you 18? <laughs> no, they're just showing it. So we're descending. People of society are descending into this base thinking where they will actually sacrifice their children. They will eat one another. They will actually do all those things. But there's an, there's another realm that gives life. And it's in the other direction. And it, it, produce, it produces pure religion. Not the religion that you take a bite out of one another. That you actually devour one another and eventually will devour. But the other way. It, and it, you're connecting with another mind, another way of thinking. And there are certain processes in the path of life that will raise your consciousness up to that level and you will receive information from that inspirational place. And we see that right away in the first century church. There was a dearth coming. Some young girls saw it coming. Uh, Agabus saw it coming. Other people saw it coming. And they could just see it. We know you go all the way back to the time of Joseph. Joseph, you know, the, the, the Pharaoh had a dream. But he didn't know what it meant. So he told one guy, and that guy he couldn't figure it out, but he told Joseph, and Joseph knew exactly what it meant. Because he's tapped into this other realm. Because he's the man of forgiveness. What is, one of the biggest things that Joseph did besides all, you know, become the, 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 the master of Egypt, was he forgave his brothers who sold them into slavery. He wouldn't betray even his slave master by sleeping with his wife. He wouldn't do that. He was a man of character. And he was a man of forgiveness. And a man of kindness and patience. And because of that, he was tapped into another source. Okay, back to Abraham. People all over the world were hooking up because they were selfish, judgmental, wanted to tax the rich, wanted to live at other people's expense their consciousness was lowering and connecting, just like a radio signal, to a bad station, <laughs> you, know, you know, a porn station or whatever. It was connecting to that. And, uh, you know, when I looked up that sadomasochist, I looked it up the other day, but I never got back to the page because I got distracted and went and did. And all of a sudden I was going through shutting down all the pages before the radio show began. So oh, what is this? Oh, I looked up sadomasochist, and so they just pan down really quick. And I saw the old pictures that you would have there, which you know of uh, 
of, you know, where the word came from, the different people back in the 1800s and stuff like that. And then I'm panning down and, whoa, whoa, they're showing, you know, naked people being tortured for real. And I thought like, wow, that just didn't exist on Wikipedia at one time, but it certainly does now. Because a whole segment of society is moving over to that, that realm of thinking. And they are the walking dead. They will be just killing one another, murdering people. And, and of course, evil wants to... Evil, the real powers of evil out there. You know, the serpent of the garden kind of thing. You know, the Satan, what we call Satan, which is the adversary of righteousness. They understand how the law works. If they tempt us, they will suffer for it. Because as you judge, so shall you be judged. But if they murder us, they they will incur greater judgment. But if they get you to murder one another because of your weakness, because your, your willingness to turn your back on the light and, and the ways of righteousness, they will destroy you. Well, one of the things that Abraham, if you read the ancient documents about Abraham that are not in the Bible, Abraham lived in Ur. And Abraham thought there was something wrong with, you know, like the Hammurabi Code type approach and and the gods many, because they had gods many. Well, these gods many were patronages where you signed up with this guy or signed up with this guy and these guys maybe signed up with the government under the authority of the government and you paid to that guy and then you were protected by the welfare that he offered. And it became this top-down authority. I mean, Nimrod organized the people into tens, hundreds, and thousands. But he had it so that the the tens, hundreds, and thousands, your minister exercised authority over you, and his minister exercised authority over him. It was regulated by the statutes of Nimrod, but it was top-down authority. Christ is doing the absolute opposite. Because it's absolutely essential that you learn to give free will offerings, that you learn to give charity, that you learn to care about other people's lives as much as you care about your own. Well, Abraham was the brother of Haran. Haran was put to death. I have suspicions as to why, but there's all kinds of rules at that time where you could get the death penalty for. And some of those rules were, you know, you could get the death penalty for doing what was right. Because these are the codes of men. But somehow or other, it appears, if you look at the language, just in the Greek, and the Hebrew, actually the Hebrew is better, that he was put to death. And terrorists said, I'm, I'm leaving Ur. And I went out and he started a city-state. And he named it after his son, Haran. Well, who's going to be the leader when terror dies? Well, Abraham is next in line. So, Abraham's son... Isaac is to be next in line as well. Now that that's just you can we actually have the cuneiform writings of the laws back at that time. That's the way it was organized. Now by Abraham leaving, and, and I was just reading this today, Abraham was leaving the nativity, his the fa- his father's house. He was going away. He he went back to Haran numerous times and then finally he came out with many souls. 
That's what it says. He came out with many souls. And they were coming out and building these altars and showing other people how to build these altars, which were systems of social welfare based on charity. That's not what they had in Iran. Now, Terah was building the altars according to Cain. He was plowing the Adam. He was compelling the offerings. He may have been doing it rather well. He may have, you know, be really helping the people out. And he may have been just right and fair in the way that he was doing it. But the danger is, is that you're giving power to somebody and that person may be tempted by the power. But the other thing is, is you're taking away the choice of the individual. When you take away the choice of the individual, you weaken them. You have to give people the right to choose. So anyway, Abraham knows that my son would be the prince of Haran. But I I should go back, and even though I don't want to be the prince of Iran, let my son do it. You know, we see that with Prince Charles now. <laughs> prince Charles is finally getting to be king, and then he's developed cancer. I don't think it's because he got the shot, because they don't think he got the shot. They just had a big, huge case where they found thousands of rich people and people high up and the government paid to not play. <laughs> they paid so that they would get false that they said they got the shot, but they didn't. They just got a saline solution because they didn't want to get the shot. But I, I can't imagine that he got the shot. But anyway, he's got cancer. That, that's not surprising. But uh, So he's going to die. He's, he's king, but he's going to die. And so his son is going to get to be king. But Abraham's son was not going to get to be king. And Abraham was sacrificing his son from that position. Now, I've gone through the story by going back and looking at what we have today as Hebrew. I haven't gone back to the Peshtita yet and, and read the story. But I've gone back to what we have as the Hebrew text. But that's the Masoretic text. That was put together about 700. And besides the, the twisting and turning and torque that they use, I, I like that word torque, that's come up recently, that they use on the language to twist it to mean what they want it to mean. Besides that, we don't necessarily have original copies. Now, we have gotten a few copies from the Dead Sea Scrolls that are pretty accurate. But I do not trust the Masoretic text. It's what I got, and I'll live with it. Uh, we do have the Peshtida. Uh, and, of course, we actually have other books, for, like from the Ethiopian. Uh, they've got a lot more books than Asubius put in. But I don't really have a definitive... I can't really prove what I think was actually going on there. Abraham may have believed that to make God happy... I needed to sacrifice my son. That did exist around the firstborn. Because there is writings about sacrificing the firstborn. And we see that even with Moses. But he doesn't mean sacrifice by killing them. He means that they become the priests of the family. The firstborn becomes the priest of the family. So what he sacrificed some of his free will. Because now he's going to have to take on a responsibility. And, of course, the firstborn of the nation were the Levites. But the firstborn of every family was the priest of that family. And they had to be dedicated to God. And so that's the sacrifice. It doesn't necessarily mean they're going to go out and kill them. And there's something bizarre in the, the language of Abraham 
going there. And they have the servants, and the servants have to stay down the trail. And that, of course, uh, they, they bring these donkeys, but then Isaac is carrying the sticks. And of course people say that's representative of Christ carrying the cross and all this kind of thing. And it could be symbolic. But just the order of the language compared to much of the other writings that we read, there's something peculiar about that. And God just hasn't revealed to me exactly what it is. But Abraham was sacrificing not just his position as prince of Iran, which he left to Nahor. Nahor would be the prince of Iran. But he was sacrificing the inheritance of his son, who should have been the next prince of uh, Haran and the wealth of his father to live out there in the desert. Now, he wasn't like unwealthy, but it wasn't like you were living in the city. And it was pretty precarious because, you know, you didn't. The only land he owned was the grave he was going to be buried. <laughs> But uh, there was a, there's a reason behind all this. And exactly, I probably can't give you a sufficient answer. But it, it seems like those, I mean, there's a lot of people in the queue. I don't see anybody raising their hand with a question. Uh, no, the reason he didn't own land is because he had given up his inheritance in Haran. He got out of the property of his nativity. And he was also a keeper of flocks. And there was a lot of land around that you could move your flocks to and everything and graze land. And that's what he was doing. It, the, the, there was the land he owned the only land he owned he bought and he insisted upon buying it paying at, they, the guy who was giving him the land wanted just to give it to him and he wouldn't take it he said I had to he says it's only right that I buy it and so he paid but he paid pieces of silver to buy that land which is just land for land it's trading land for land it's the only way to really buy land from somebody else you have to pay present value, which is why you can't buy land with a note. You can only discharge a debt with a note. You don't actually own the land. And that's got us into a lot of trouble. But it, he wouldn't owe any taxes. You have to remember, Abraham was not only a prince, a king, and we know the king doesn't owe any taxes, because <laughs> Jesus tells us that. And, uh, and, of course, in the kingdom that he was creating, the network that he was creating, nobody owed any taxes. That they ha- they they were supported by free will offerings, because the altars that provided for the social welfare, provided for their military when the military was out having to fight, or you know hunting down thieves or whatever it was, they had to leave their crops, they had to leave their farms. They couldn't be raising their food when they were doing this, and if they were professional soldiers. You know, doing this all the time, maybe they, you know, like a sheriff who does it full time, what we call a sheriff today, the sheriff or even in the old days. But they might have somebody who was really a good tracker, he was really good swordsman, he was really good with a slingshot, he was really good. And they said, well, look, you know, whenever there's a robbery, you come there, you know, you're our uh, Hawaiian 5-0, our Magnum PI, you're going to solve the crime. And if you need backup, you know, like if it's a bunch of thugs and, you know, he's tracking them down and said, you see some guys going by, I see trails. And so there were guys like that. And they couldn't tend their flocks. And they might only do this for five or ten years, you know, like the Lone Ranger kind of thing. 
But if they ran into five or ten guys, they're going to need backup. And they're going to say, okay, I need some backup. And everybody's going to come, you know, posse comitatus kind of thing. They're going to come and back them up. But he needed to be supported. Because he's dedicating all his time to doing this, not keeping flocks. Now, sometimes, if a household was wealthy enough, there might be just one son that does this and everybody else covers his chores. I mean, we do that. You know, if somebody has to go get a job and they were going to do stuff... We would do his chores until that job was done, and then he'd come back. Now most of my kids have full-time jobs, but we, I, I get access to the grandkids now, and then I see them going by. They're supposed to help me when we start lambing here shortly. But, uh, you know, that, what, there was there was taxes on land, of course, in Nimrod's Babylon and in and, uh, and Ur and, and probably in Haran. And certainly in Sodom and Gomorrah, but uh, no, that's he—he he just didn't own land because he'd given up his inheritance when he left uh, Haran. His father was extremely, extremely wealthy, and he took his possessions and left Ur and went to a place and started Haran. And they were probably having—they tr- had traders going all over the area and trading in different areas. We know there were mines that, you know, somebody discover a mine that, you know, like a turquoise mine or something. You know, 50 guys would go and live there at the mine and mine and and collect the ore and separate it and then bring it back and that would be their wealth. We did that in early America here on the West Coast. Uh, There were Spanish who came up through our valley. They left marks. I can show you where those marks are. But they came up here and they, there was a silver mine up north of us over the Picture Rock Pass that I mentioned earlier. And they lived there for like 20 years. You know, and they lived off the land. They planted gardens. They had probably goats and maybe even some cattle. I don't know. Uh, maybe some sheep. And they hunted. They hunted the deer and the antelope and all that stuff. But they also mined. There's gold mines and silver mines in our valley and they found a silver mine at least probably a gold mine too and they supposedly mined it they think for 20 or 30 years they lived up here raised their families everything and then they they went all the way back they didn't they didn't commute back and forth but they went all the way back probably to Mexico or Southern California and bought a hacienda that's what they believe they don't know they just know they lived here Back in the 30s, you could still see the remains of the adobe structures that they lived in from Highway 31. But uh, I'm not sure which Highway 31 that was because Highway 31 has been in two different places over the last hundred years. <laughs> it wasn't called Highway 31 back then. Yeah, When I came here, they still called the mail truck the stage. So... Anyway, but that was a common thing that people did and that people were going around and doing that. And nobody taxed them on that thing, but they went in large numbers in case somebody tried to attack them and then they could protect them. We actually, I know of people who found conquistador helmets on a butte that I, I can't see it from here right now. If I was a little bit higher up, we could see it. And they found that and some swords up there on the top of the butte. And, of course, they weren't to pick them up. If they've t- 
I pulled him away. <laughs> I know the guys who did it. I didn't know they're still alive. I seem to be outliving everybody else. But anyway, <laughs> but anyway uh, so Sarah, that's kind of the best answer I can give you right now on such a short notice. But anyway, I don't see anybody else's hand coming up. We we got to uh, John 6. And so now we'll be going on to John 7 next week. And I'm losing daylight and I'm losing my voice. So I'm going to say peace on your house. Thanks everybody for coming. All the people in the chat room, all the people in the uh, queue. Uh, and uh, join us here. And uh, it's at Freedomizers where we do this. Uh, but uh, if you want to come on the show live, if you want to be a guest, if you know somebody wants to be a guest, this is a show that's easiest to do. And uh, until then, peace on your house. And may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.